0: joining me for another one. My next guest is the founder of the Brock Foundation, and this is an incredible cause. So he's taking minority children and underprivileged children in Atlanta and introducing them to aviation. So he's taking them up to fly. Now this is big because it's very expensive to learn and to get into the aviation industry. And he's doing this out of his own pocket. Rarely do people come through on the feats that they aim to accomplish. My next guest has accomplished his feat. I introduce to you the very ambitious Omar Brock. Just the nuance of it, right? I like to get it like if it was like water talk, if that makes sense. No, no, absolutely. Cool. So Omar, thank you so much for coming on the show. I super appreciate it. I'm really, really excited about this one because like I said earlier to you when we were talking over the text, uh, this isn't your, I guess, everyday walk of life you know hey you know hoop your way hoop your dreams type motivation story you're doing something completely different that i personally i I don't even know anybody who's messing in that industry so first and foremost before we go in please let the listeners know a little bit about yourself oh
1: man first of all uh thank you so much for the kind words um yeah man it, it is not an easy feat i i will say that much so i definitely understand why a lot of people aren't <laughs> aren't uh diving into the industry um however uh somebody's got to do it man but uh, a little bit about my organization um the brock foundation inc was uh, started believe it or not last month in the month of november um, and the purpose of my organization is to push inclusivity and in aviation uh, via identification and what that means is I know that sounds like what but um pretty much in aviation there is two percent representation of minority pilots uh, worldwide and to me when I first heard that information I was just uh, taken off by it, and I was like only two percent in the entire world and I just couldn't fathom why there was two percent so um Yeah, I kind of got into the industry. Uh, I'm sure we'll get into my story a little bit later, but um, that's part of the reason why I wanted to uh, birth this organization. And when I say uh, push inclusivity uh, via identification, what that means is that, you know, I always open up every segment that I have with a a kid um, here in Atlanta that I take flying with um, asking them, you know, how many... um, black pilots, Spanish pilots, minority pilots have you seen in your lifetime? And usually, um, most of them can only maybe on one hand say one, maybe two at the most, you know, lucky if they say three. And, um, you know, and for me, it was the same way growing up. I never saw pilots that looked like me. Um, I never saw other minority pilots. And, you know, that's a big part of the reason why, there's still 2% representation. And to this day, um, I truly believe that in order for kids to want to pursue this uh, career path, they have to see individuals who look like them doing what they love in uniforms, uh, men and women, for them to identify with the career path. I mean, that's the only way that they're going to be sure.
0: inspired. So
1: uh, that's pretty much the driving force behind why I am doing what I Okay.
0: Want. So, why is it that, is there like a reason, I know that that's probably a broad question, but why is it that there's only 2% of minorities in the aviation industry? Is there a reason for that? Is it systemic or well, is it, you know, a lot of different small things? You want, you want to
1: know what, that's a great question. Um, Honestly, I think uh a major part of the reason is because um, minority kids can't identify with it because they don't see a lot of yeah. minority pilots and the, other side of that is um to become a pilot, to be honest, the training is not cheap. It is a a huge uh financial undertaking. Um the average pilot spends uh what a doctor spends on their education. Wow. And um you know, there is not a lot of uh aviation institutions in term uh from a uh university okay. standpoint there's a out there, but there's not a lot of um, schools out there set up uh, mainly for aviation. Um, so, a lot of kids, uh, you know, if they're lucky enough to go to one of those schools, that's great. But a lot of us train at airports. So, generally speaking, um, there's a lot of airports that have programs set up with flying clubs where, you know, just anybody can come, you know, you can get uh, certified and you just pay money and, um, you know, that's how that works but just in general it's just expensive uh kids don't see a lot of uh individuals who look like them and um i think that's majority of of the issue and why um the 2% is uh remaining in place sure in my
0: um So is it like a typical career in the sense that, you know, you can rock your way through, through school and get really good grades in order to become a pilot? Or is it one of these skills where you can, you know, as long as you're savvy enough, you can buy your way in, uh, with these classes.
1: Uh, not at all, man. Um, (laughs) being a pilot is, uh, pursuing, uh, becoming a pilot is, uh, not a, um, easy task, but it is uh, obtainable. Um, So there's different uh, stages that you go after, or rather, I should say, um, there's different certificates and ratings. And, you know, you're always uh, pursuing an add-on rating after you have initially acquired your private pilot certificates. Uh, So pretty much you start as a private pilot. And once you obtain becoming a private pilot, uh, you become a instrument rated uh, if you choose to. And I'll go over the difference between uh, what that means yeah. here in a second. And um, after you become an instrument rated pilot, you become a commercial pilot. And then usual, uh, usually you add on your multi-engine rating so you can fly planes with uh, two um, props. And then from there, most pilots become a certified flight instructor and you instruct until you have received your uh, 1500 hours that are required for you to um, apply for the airlines for a job. Um, So I said all of that to say that along with the training that's specified by the FAA that goes along with that, you also have to know so much uh, material in terms of knowledge because with every rating, there's also a um, written exam that you have to take and pass at least with a 70% score. Okay. And, uh, you know, 70% doesn't oh. sound like, oh, that's that's probably easy to obtain. Uh, but each test um, draws from a uh, thousand choice uh, question bank and um, you are just handed, you know, a book of material and there's different resources out there for you to learn. Uh, From, however, you don't know what thousand, uh, what questions out of the thousand will be on the test, but each written exam consists of 60 questions total. So you're studying for a thousand questions, but you're only going to get 60 of those. I see. Um, So for every. No, no, I'm I'm listening. I see. So. um, So, yeah, for every rating, there's a written exam, um, a part of it. And then you have to actually take a check ride. And uh, that comes after you have met all the requirements and you've taken the written exam. So, you know, just keep in mind, there's so much material that you have to learn. And even now at uh, the state where I am, I'm still learning material and you're never going to stop learning material as a pilot. You will never know anything. And the moment that you think you do know uh, everything, then you have to check yourself because that's probably your ego getting in the way.
0: Omar. Omar. Uh hold yes, on sir. one second. I keep losing you, brother. There was a few times there with the microphone just cut out. Um let me stop this one and let's continue right where we left off. Give me one second.
1: Yeah. No problem. Gotcha.
0: All right. Now it, it in what you were saying, all the testing and all the paperwork and all the the you know the education that you have to do, is this before you even get to fly, or is this in the process of both, like flying and that this more quote unquote.
1: Great question. Uh, this is the the process uh, you're doing both at the same time always. Um, some people, I mean, you technically can, you know, let's say if you didn't have the uh, funds to afford to fly as uh, consistently as you wanted to, uh, okay. you could technically prepare for all of your written exams and um, study for them and pay the money to take them because there's a a price um, associated with taking each of those written exams. They usually cost about 160 a pop. So um, you could study for all of your exams, literally take every written exam. However, you have to, um, there's certain endorsements that you have to get from a flight instructor. So that's why they kind of go hand in hand. Like once you're training with a flight instructor, he's also training you to fly. And for the book material, you're pretty much on your own. However, they do have ground schools set up in place, which is where your uh, flight instructor uh, facilitates the education portion of it um, outside of what you're learning in the aircraft. So most of the time uh, people do them together hand in hand. But, you know, there are rare occasions where people just choose to focus on the written exams and they focus on the flying later.
0: Okay, and this happens over. I, I remember you saying a, a few sec- a few minutes ago about you know the different types of pilot, commercial pilot. Now, this is in the span of how much time?
1: Uh, to be honest, man, if you've got the money and you've got the time, there's yep. a lot of uh, accelerated uh, programs out here. So, believe it or not, you can get all of your ratings um, as quickly as uh, a year and a half to two years, man.
0: Wow. Okay, that's really fast, and you could be certified to 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 do what?
1: You can be certified. You can uh, have all of your ratings and um, be ready for uh, to apply for an airline job in that in that time. Uh, there's okay. schools like uh, ATP, um, which is uh, they're very well known. They have an accelerated program, which is why uh, often people go to them. And you know, a lot of the airlines endorse them. But you can literally go zero to a hundred, and they have a program and course set up where you can get all of your ratings done. In your ATP, in like a year and a half, I believe, to two years. And then in that time, you would, you know, they would be overseeing your process, but you would flight instruct with them and all of the steps that I mentioned earlier. You would do all of that under their wing. And once you've done with your uh, flight instruction and you've hit your hour mark, then you're ready to apply for an airline job.
0: Awesome. Can you explain the different types of, of pilots? You were saying that there were different type of pilot uh, licenses, I assume.
1: Yeah. So um, what that means is that uh, what I was referring to is that there's, um, I guess, the best way to put it is there's, along with those stages that I mentioned, there are uh, different, um, per the FAA, there's uh, certain things that you are qualified to do and certain things that you're not qualified to do. So for example, um, when you first start flying and you are initially pursuing your private pilot certificate, which is the first step, you okay. are flying under visual flight rules. So that is a VFR flying. And what that means is that all of the flying that you're doing, it is, uh, it is based off of visual flight rules. And those are rules that are put in place for you to be able to train um, efficiently and to be able to land and be safe under uh, what the FAA has mandated for that type of flying that you're doing. So basically on a beautiful sunny day, if you're only a private pilot, that means that you are only certified to fly in visual flight rules conditions. Now, on um, days like it has been lately where, there's, uh, where where it's muggy and it's cloudy and it's raining, then you have to have an instrument rating, which is the next step. And that instrument rating um, allows you to be able to fly in the clouds, in the weather, um, not saying that you would want to, but if you've got to be somewhere and you need to fly, um, you would need an instrument rating to be safe um, in those types of conditions. And instrument flying is basically what it means—you're flying based off of uh, your instruments, so you're not looking out outside at all. In fact, um, what happens is uh, if you do look outside while you're flying in, um, you know, inclement weather and uh, the clouds, then you can develop, um, it's, uh, called like a spattle disorientation. And okay. what that means is you lose the, uh, you lose your, um, orientation to the horizon. So you could get confused and the senses in your inner ear begin to throw off, throw you off a bit. And, um, you could wow. basically induce yourself in a spin and then if you're not trained properly or, you know, you're too close to the ground, you might not be able to recover. And of course you would probably end up in an accident. So that's why, uh, that's the difference between VFR flying and IFR flying, which is instrument rated flying.
0: Gotcha. And you need to be now, what changes in the qualification for that? Is it, uh, procedural or is it the equipment that you're allowed to use? what is it that changes from level to level?
1: Uh, definitely, um, uh, procedure. So, uh, Like with the VFR flying, you look at your equipment, but your eyes are outside. You're going between the two. It's constant scanning. You want to be looking outside, seeing what's around you, excuse me, and um, looking inside as well and looking at your equipment. But with instrument flying, the scan is what we call it. Um, Usually we call it a six pack. So inside of the flight deck, you have your instruments uh, set up. There's, there's circular circular uh, instruments set up and we call it a six pack. So there's a specific way that you scan the instruments and you should always be cross-checking each instrument. So with VFR flying, you're doing that and looking outside. With IFR flying, you're only looking at the instruments. So that's the difference in the technique and that sometimes that can be hard a hard transition for, for some pilots because, you know, Oftentimes you wanna look outside, but you can't afford to do it. You have to rely on the equipment and trust the equipment.
0: Okay. And and is it, you know, like like they say, like when you go from a smaller car to a bigger car. Oh, you'll just get used to it and then it feels normal. Is it that type of thing with flying? Like once you get used to one plane, you kinda of get all of them, or is it specific to each plane?
1: Oh no, not at all. Um so with with the planes, um, so essentially like you you start training in um We call them trainer aircraft. So all of the uh, smaller planes are generally uh, trainer aircraft. They're considered uh, general aviation planes. So they're they're the planes that have the single prop engines on them, Um, you know, six cylinders, um, you know, anywhere from 160 horsepower to 180. And uh, we train in those. And believe it or not, those planes are some of them are really old, but they are still very reliable. Like the plane I actually train in is a, a 1971 uh, Alpha Grumman Five um, wow. aircraft. And um, planes are a little bit different. Like, you know, as long as you keep up with the different inspections and the maintenance on it, they'll continue yep. to fly. Um, obviously after a while you have to overhaul the engine, um, which is basically, you know, almost paying for a new engine in terms of cost, but planes continue to fly and we train in the older aircraft. Now, when you get to, uh, you know, dual props, which is, you know, the two engines, then the, uh, the the feel for the plane is a little bit different. And then from there, most likely you will probably be flying um, a smaller jet next. So they, they all fly different, but once you have mastered the smaller aircraft in terms of understanding the equipment, And, you know, the flying uh, in general, then it sets you up to, you know, kind of have an easy transition to those other type aircraft, but they all fly different. I mean, even with the smaller planes, there's so many different types. There's even, uh, there's low wing planes and there are high wing planes and uh, they both land completely different. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of difference between
0: each of the smaller planes. Gotcha. Okay. So I'm trying to learn how to fly. The first obvious thing that I'm going to think of is, is you want me to train in that thing. I'm extremely scared. (laughs) What do you tell that person about safety protocol? What do you guys do to make sure that while you're training, you feel as safe as possible?
1: Um, So pretty much uh, before every flight, um, obviously uh, for first time flyers, Um, Well, in general, we do a brief before every flight. So there's certain protocols set in place by the FAA that is mandatory before every flight. And we have like uh, different acronyms in place that help us remember to do those things. But essentially, um, in terms of the person that you're flying with, if they're concerned, obviously you want to go over the entire process of what they should expect in flight and if in the event that there is an emergency you want to instruct to to them what to do you explain where you know for example the um the uh you know where certain equipment is and how to unlatch the the harness and get out in the event that we have an abrupt landing um you know so there's a lot of details that we usually go over when we have passengers to ensure that it's safe and from just a safety standpoint in general, um, I'm pretty sure you've heard it before, but flying in a plane is, um, you know, almost a hundred times safer than driving in a car. Um, You really have to, you know, there's, I won't say that nothing can go wrong because obviously things can go wrong, but, you know, there's always an opportunity to put yourself in a, in a better position uh, when you're flying in the event that you have an emergency, because there is always a step-down procedure, so to speak, we have a checklist that s- tells us what to do in the event that we just freeze up and we draw a blank. There's always a checklist there for you. So, you know, in the event that you have a engine fire, in the event that you uh, have a loss of electrical power, um, in the event that you lose the alternator, you know, you have 30 minutes before you need to land, uh, before the whole plane completely dies on you. So there's wow. checklists checklist in place. So you always know what to do and you just want to be as detailed as possible with uh, explaining to that passenger and making them feel comfortable because, you know, a lot of people don't like the way the smaller planes feel. Um, You know, I've been doing it so long that it doesn't bother me. But, you know, when you first get into it and you take those first few flights, it, it takes some getting used to because you're much closer to... Everything around you, you know, in the bigger planes, right. you're you're in a large cabin and, you know, you kind of got your headsets on, the windows, uh, shade is closed and you, you know, you, you're not really taking the fact that you're in a giant tube cruising across the sky, but in the smaller planes, it's very apparent. You usually have a dome um, that's covering you and you can see outside all around you. So that's a lot more frightening
0: than some people. Bet. How often are you flying nowadays? Oh, me, man. I
1: fly... I probably fly too much. Uh, <laughs> but, um, I fly usually whew, at least like four times, four or five times a week, man. But when I do fly, I am uh, at this state in my career, I am usually pulling like long haul flights. So I'm taking three, four hour flights just to build time because that's, that's my thing right now, just building time. So oh, right. You know, so I'm just taking long flights right now, which they don't bother me. I enjoy flying all together, so I don't really get bored or anything like that.
0: Yeah. What do you you explain to me, if you don't mind, what building time is?
1: Uh, So building time is, uh, that was uh, me referring to the uh, 1,500-hour mark. So um, in order to get hired by the airlines, you need 1,500 hours. And um, every pilot is uh, building time in some shape, form, or fashion who is already not at the uh, airline level. So you know, like I said, there's a few ways that you can do that. Um, there's guys who, guys and gals who um, choose to become uh, certified flight instructors, and you can instruct students. However, um, you can log the hours that you are instructing with that student, and you're also getting paid for it as well. So that is a um, a big. Motivation for some guys to go down that sure. route to build their hours because usually you can, that's the fastest way to do it. But you do have some people who just get their commercial license and they go work for a, um, let's say a, a Cape Air or a Nantucket Air, and they just get right out there building their hours. And in the year, they work so much for that smaller um, airline company that they build their 1500 hours and then they just go apply to an airline job.
0: Okay. Now I'm interested in 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 pilots. What do you what does the industry do for you guys and gals? Um, and what do you guys have to do for yourself when it comes to mental health? I mean, I would think it's a huge responsibility on your hand oh. to have, you know, an airplane stuffed full of people, you know, their <laughs> lives are at your hands, and that's, you know, things can go wrong, like you said. That's big. What do you guys do to handle that type of stuff or the industry?
1: Oh man, yeah. Um so <laughs> Believe it or not, man, uh, it's, we have, uh, we use this acronym called uh, I'm safe in PAVE. And um, in aviation, you use acronyms for everything so you can remember them. But um, so what PAVE stands for is uh, the P is for pilot. Um, the A is for the uh, airplane. V is for the environment. Um, and uh, E is for uh, external forces. And then I'm safe that acronym stands for, uh, illness. Um, the M is for medicine. Um, the S is for stress. The T is, uh, wait, let me make sure I have to write it out what I'm saying. I'm stre- Sure. No, um, I'm safe. I said T my bad. So yeah, That's fine. So the A is for alcohol. The F is for fatigue and the E is for emotion. So, um, those acronyms, um, kind of sum up what we have to do before every flight before we walk into an airport to um fly people and just every day when we're flying on our own training because we all always have to consider our emotional well-being if we're stressed if we're under pressure um because uh most of the faa recorded accidents uh can be tied to um some type of uh pilot error from the stance of um one of those areas not being in checked and or we have another acronym for um like your ego and you know impulsivity and things like that so we we're constantly have to consider that before we fly every day and the moment that one of those are out of line then you as the pilot you have to make the decision that you're unfit to fly which for the most part we we're good about that. And, you know, we can just go home. Like you literally, if you're scheduled for a trip at an airliner and they say, you know, you have to go to Rome today. If you call them, um, and you say, Hey, mentally I am not there, you know, legality wise, you have to, they have to let you off that trip. Like there's, there's no option. So you can literally walk off the trip and go home and there's no, uh, you know, you won't get in trouble, uh, by yeah.
0: employer because of that. Is there a pool of, of pilots that they have on standby or like, do do they delay the flight? How, how does that work out?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, it can work a number of ways, man. There's, there's, there's always, um, pilots on standby. Um, however, there's a worldwide, there's a shortage of pilots. Uh, well, let me say this at least before the pandemic there was, um, okay. and I'll go into that in a minute, but, um, please. So, uh, Worldwide, I mean, there's there's not a, a lot of people going into aviation um, altogether, uh, just because of, like I said, the, the financial uh, costs associated and things of that nature. Um, but there's all already a shortage, and then on top of that, you know, <laughs> they most pilots are in a uh, union as well, so. The airline is to a certain extent to the mercy of the pilot union and the union to the airline. So there are a few um, pilots that are usually on standby, but most of the time there is not a lot. But being that, you know, the typical airline that has bases everywhere, they literally like, for example, let's say a pilot came into work and he decided when he got to work that you know, mentally, he was just not up to par. He was having uh, problems at home in his marriage. And he just, you know, tells his um, uh, senior, um, senior pilot, uh, you know, staff that, hey, I'm just not here today. I got to go home and get my head together. And they would essentially try to use one of the standbys. But if they didn't have anybody, there's uh, instances where they will actually fly a pilot in from uh, somewhere else in another state to work that particular trip. So, you know, that's why sometimes when you're in the airport, you know, and, you know, the gate agents are telling you, hey, we have a, we uh, have a little bit of a situation. Um, It's not a maintenance issue, but it's a staffing issue. Usually it's because they're trying to get somebody to come in, whether it's a flight attendant or a pilot, and they may be out of standbys at their particular airport. So somebody might be at home that they're calling to come in. And or they may have somebody in another state that they gotta fly in, so you're literally waiting there in the airport until somebody flies in to fly you where you need to go.
0: Wow, <laughs> <laughs> so, that's insanely complex. Yeah, <laughs> so it's crazy. So I, before I, I want to circle uh, back to you know the Brock, the Brock Foundation and everything, but I want you to tell me what is it that got you into aviation in the first place? Because that seems so completely left field from, like you said, for a minority to grow up and say, hey, I'm gonna get into this field. Come, tell me your story.
1: Yeah, man, so um, <laughs> it's funny. I never thought about uh, becoming a pilot, um, never was uh, interested in it. Um, I actually grew up uh, in most of uh, my high school and collegiate career pursuing uh, performing arts. Like I was I was an actor, a singer, and that was just like my, my passion and my love, and um, I ended up doing that all through college, and you know graduated with a, a degree in um, broadcast journalism, and thought I was going to do that and still act after college. And then you know you graduate from college, and the real the real world happens, and you're like, oh, like I was supposed to have all this years of experience when I just graduated from college, so I can't get a job at um, none of the the news networks. So what am I gonna do? So you start taking all of these odd in jobs and stuff to survive. And um, I've literally had every job under the sun after college, besides what I went to school for. So um, being in Atlanta here, uh, there's only <laughs> three major corporations that most people uh, desire to work for because they're the biggest here. And those corporations are Coca-Cola, uh, Georgia Power, Delta Airlines. Um, so, <laughs> so, growing, so big selection. <laughs> yeah, so, so growing up in Atlanta, like these were always the, the 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 big major industries that I saw because it's so much of the culture here in Atlanta. Like everything yeah. has Coke, and you know everything has to do with Delta. Like you just grow up seeing that. So, um, after working for an IT company. Um, you know, in my last loose end job, I was just like, what am I doing here? I'm sitting at a computer and I'm like all day long, I'm working with people who are not enthused about life. They're unhappy and it's starting to rub off on me. Um, You know, I'm really not passionate about this field. And um, I I knew a gentleman at the time who uh, was working for um, a major airline. And uh, I was like, hey man, like, you know, like, do you like working for them? And he's like, Yeah, 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 I like it, man. It's just so much freedom. I, you know, I don't have a boss. It's like, you know, I get my schedule. I travel a lot. My family travels for free. And you know, this guy was always gone. Every time I would call him, he's like, Yeah, I'm in uh, Barbados on the beach with my family. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, that's what I need to be doing, man. Like,
0: <laughs> definitely. Can
1: you can you get me associated with that? So um, I never forget the day he. um actually uh, called me. He said, hey, 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 go online right now. Go fill out an application. Um, I, I heard that uh, Delta's hiring. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah I'm on it. I'm, I'm on it. I'm logging right now. So um I uh, filled out the uh, application and got the call, man. And I came in for an interview and I got the job on the spot, man. And um, it was just like, this new world, man. Aviation in itself is like, it, it it encompasses so much and it's a totally different lifestyle. So when I came into the job, I remember sitting in training and um, they were basically uh, bringing all of these different departments in to talk about statistics of the company, um, et cetera. And I just remember sitting there in the classroom and you know, there was a female pilot speaking and uh, she was talking, she was breaking down the statistics of race and uh, sex in the um, airline industry. And I was like, okay, I was listening. And then she gets to the part where she's like, yeah, there's only uh, 2% of minorities. And I'm like, it just struck a chord. Like, why is there only 2%? Like, this is crazy to me um and uh from that day on man really I just took it as a challenge to become a part of that 2% and that became my driving force and I just went after it man full full steam and I was like you want to know what I'm going to work and I'm going to get off of work and I'm going to fly and train and I'm going to figure it out just so I could change the narrative and become a part of that 2%. So that's pretty much you know what drove me to get into this. And man, it's like, I fell in love with it and I can't see myself doing anything else, man.
0: Yeah. That's, that's incredible. Yeah. Now what, what is it, the, the age group that you're working with here when you, when you, you're working with, with kids, right. Minorities. Right. Right. And and what's the threshold? Yeah. How do you get into, you know, how does the Brock foundation help them out? I guess is the question.
1: Gotcha. So, um, with the Brock foundation, um, We basically, with me knowing what I know in terms of uh, paying out of pocket for training and pursuing this and knowing how expensive it is and just all the drama that I've had uh, trying to train and hopping from flight school to flight school, it's just a lot, man. And I can't fathom with Atlanta being the type of city that it is, why there isn't anything in place to, you know, if not completely fund uh, the careers of minority children here, at least help them out substantially. Um, because you know, I don't know if you know, but Atlanta is considered that uh, it has the nickname "Chocolate City," but it's it's number one for um, uh, minority women's success, and it's predominantly a uh, a black and minority city. So for me, um, being here, it was just like you know, why isn't there anything in place that can help advance kids to change the 2% because that's what it's all about, you know? Yeah. Um. So I decided to just jump out there, man, and start my nonprofit. And um, my goal is to secure as much funding as possible to buy planes, as well as to fund every single last kid's um, uh, aviation training career as possible that I run into that shows an interest in aerospace. So it sounds like a huge feat, and it probably will be, but, you know, I am uh, prepared to take on that because that is my passion, man. So.
0: Yeah, that's definitely something I've gotten from um, the very first time my wife showed me. Um, I think it was your wife's post. And when I saw it, it was one of those things where like, you know, we're we're so um, numb to a lot of social media stuff and a lot of stuff that people are doing because we kind of see the charlatan aspect of it, right? right? So you'll see somebody doing something and they're giving it away or they're doing this and in the back of your head, you're like, yeah, yeah, that, that's a load of bullshit, right? <laughs> and then for some reason, though, I, well, not for some reason, because it was genuine. I saw yours and I was like, whoa, why is nobody paying any attention to this right here? Because... Once again, I could set up a little, you know, gym and and run a little basketball clinic and say, hey, you could change your life by playing basketball. Um, And and there's nothing wrong with that. But that's been recycled over and over again. You're not only trying to get minorities out of a tough situation. You're trying to literally get them to explore the world. They'll be able to travel the world. They'll be able to do more than just what they grew up with.
1: Exactly. And, um, you know, I think... I definitely understand uh where you're coming from in regards to us being just so numb uh with social media, man. And I feel like after a year like twenty twenty, man, it is Oh yeah. I mean, that's a whole nother uh subject matter, but just after a, a year like this, it was just I feel like it was God ordained to put it on my heart to end the year with something like this to inspire those kids going into twenty twenty one and um yeah, man, it's it's really my mission, and for me, it's like, you know, it initially started with just a post, and I wasn't, I didn't have any intentions of seeking any um, any uh, exposure or uh, trying to get everybody's attention for my own self glorification. It was more of like, hey, I'm a pilot, and um, what I want to do is this holiday season. I'm going to find as many kids as possible and I'm just going to go take them flying to introduce them to aviation because, you know, I think that would be a cool gift to give a kid that might not, you know, have even ever flown in their life or have the ability to fly. So it started okay. off in post and then people just started grabbing onto it and they're like, hey, you're, are you starting something? Like, you know, uh, I would be interested in sending my kid. And I was so overwhelmed by the amount of dms i was getting that i was like like this has to be god telling me like you need to do it like take it on and do it in you know the best way possible so for me i was like you want to know what i i'm going to take it on by the horns man and i was like you know the next day i woke up went on the secretary of state of georgia and i was like look let me go ahead and file for this um nonprofit, get my ein and like get the ball rolling and um you know, I was like, you want to know what? Let's just end the year with uh, my first event, my first launch. And I'm going to take on all the kids who uh, families reached out to me via my DM. And it just so happened to be like 30 different uh, kids. So, <laughs> I was-
0: yeah, that's awesome. Congratulations,
1: man. Thank you, man. So, um, yeah, we're, we're taking 30 kids up on December 19th. And I am super stoked. I called a lot of my pilot friends, and they're going to come in and fly into the airport and uh, help share the load. So we're literally going to take over the airport for the day, man. And um, we have a pretty cool setup. So with the 30 kids, we're going to split them up into groups of 10 uh, for COVID purposes, obviously. And sure. We're going to put them on a rotation uh, at the um, airport. So 10 of those kids will um, go to the flight museum, which is on site. And the flight museum consists of old uh, retired warbirds. So we literally have a retired F-15 at the airport. And, you know, they'll get to sit in these aircraft, uh, tour the museum, see all this old uh, war memorabilia and ask questions. And then the second group of 10 will be in a classroom listening to airline pilots, as well as collegiate pilots and military pilots talk about the different career paths and processes to get to where they are. And then the third group will actually be outside where um, seven pilots have agreed to volunteer their plane to take the kids flying in the traffic pattern over the airport. And we're going to rotate each group until all 30 have done each activity.
0: That's incredible! Super organized. I love that you just took something that completely changed your life and are paying it forward and trying to change some not not only one person's life but thirty people's lives. That's incredible, man! And you plan on doing this over and over again, right? This is not the only time you plan on doing this. Oh
1: yeah, absolutely. Um, this is really just the lunch, uh, my coming out party, to say the least. Um, but you know the the larger scale things that I have in mind um, truly are fixated on purchasing planes yep. for these kids as well as um, securing funding to pay for all of their um, flight training. So each each of the 30 kids that attend my event, I'm trying to make it my mission to secure funding to um, pay for each of the 30 to at least get their private pilot certificate. And just okay. in the uh, perspective of cost-wise for each rating, um, so your private pilot certificate usually ranges from uh, five to 10 grand and your um, instrument um, rating usually costs another five. Your commercial costs you 25,000. And then your um, multi-engine add-on is another five grand. And then when you get to um, your CFI, you're talking about another five to 10 grand uh, to become a CFI. And then after that, you know, obviously you would be a flight instructor. So you be, you begin to get paid while you're instructing and building your hours. So um, to at least be able to supply uh, 10K for each of those 30 kids to um, get their private license, if I could at least do that, then I feel like my mission is uh, somewhat fulfilled because they will never not have their, um, their private pilot. You, I mean, you have to remain current on it but once you have it, you have the freedom to fly anywhere in the United States that you want to fly um, when you want, obviously, um, with no restraints. So that I want to, you know, like the slogan of the event is, I truly want to give them the gift
0: of flight. That's incredible. Yeah. So how's, how's the funding going? Like, are you just meeting with people? What strategies have you used to kind of gather this funding? Volunteers? Man, to be
1: honest, <laughs> I have been uh, fundraising for it. Um, and you know, like I said, it started with the one flyer and I was like, for me, honestly, I was prepared to take on the financial burden of paying for each family that hit me up in terms of taking their kids up just to take them on a discovery flight, because that's something that I do now all the time. Like, you know, if I'm, because it's really no loss to me. So if I know I have to go fly four hours for my training. Why not bring two kids along so they can experience it? You know what I mean. So
0: Absolutely. there's
1: no real loss for me to take kids with me. So I was prepared to schedule it where you know every family that hit me up, okay, I'll put this one on a week in um, December that I know I'm flying. The other one on the next week until I knock out all 30. But right. once I decided to start the nonprofit, I was like, you want to know what? I need to get people involved and you know to make the mission bigger than what I'm trying to do. And honestly, you know, it just, I felt like God spoke to me and he was like, yo, you can do this and you can, you can really change some lives, not just by giving them a flight every now and then, like you can put something in place that is going to usher them and foster them into this airline industry. And they're going to have a job, be able to break generational curses and be able to, um, you know, fund Whatever it is they want to fund in their lifetime with no problems, and that's a bigger testament, I feel, to uh, what my life should stand for. So, um, yeah, man, I started fundraising, and you know, people started giving willingly, and um, that's great, but the nonprofit uh, thing is so complicated that even right now, even though people have donated – being that um, my nonprofit is pending on the IRS level, so it's yep. it's filed as a nonprofit, but until they clear you through the IRS system, you technically cannot receive donations. So okay. well, what that means is that the money that people have been gifting, it has been going into an account that I can't even touch. So even the event that I'm having, I'm funding it myself.
0: Oh, Wow. <laughs> oh wow. But Leave it up to the IRS to mess everything up, huh? <laughs> yeah, man, but but that, that comes
1: apart with uh learning all of this, you know what I mean? Because for me, yeah, that and that's why I was telling you when I first got on the call, like you were saying about uh people not being um uh interested in diving into the nonprofit arena, man. It it is a lot of rules, regulations. Um, legalities that sure. you have to dig into and that have to be in place um, so you don't get into any trouble. So a lot of this has been like a learning curve. Like I figured that you just go to the Secretary of uh, State of Georgia, you put in for the uh, business name, you get it, you get your EIN number, you file your uh, occupational tax certificate, and that was it. But that's not it. You also have to file your uh, bylaws With the IRS, you have to fill out a 1023 form and those forms uh, themselves are like kind of in depth and you have to uh, sit down with the CPA and a lawyer and get them involved. So you're making the right um, documentation. Uh, So, yeah, man, it's been a learning experience, but, you know. I'm not, you know, I'm taking it as it comes uh, and you know, everything is on track the way it's supposed to be. So, you know, even though that money is there um, and I can't touch it, as soon as they approve everything, then I'll be able to access it. And that's just going towards um, buying the planes for them or just paying for their certificates and ratings. So, you know, even though I'm sponsoring this event myself, really, You know, it's not a problem. I'm I'm raising funds in general for the cause and for the mission. So even if I can't access that until a month from now, two months, three months from now, it is totally okay because like I said, this was something that I decided to take up and that God put on my heart. And, you know, I like to I like to finish what I start.
0: Wow. That's 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 incredible. That's that's exactly why I have this platform is for people like you. Now, I want to ask you a question personally. If you were, you know, if we go back to your, you know, when you were in your IT job and you were basically sitting there and you were around people that are um, self-defeated. I could relate to that a thousand percent, by the way. But I want what would you tell the person that's in that situation now, how they can turn into what you have become over time? Because it seems like you went from settling for less to now going completely unconscious. I mean, you're, you're going to a level that you have no idea what's going next and you're walking blindly and you're being proud about it. Definitely. So what would you tell that person? How do they change?
1: That is a great question, man. Um, I honestly think that, you know, that God puts you in certain situations for you to come to that realization on your own. Um, and I feel like, you know, people that are in that specific situations uh, in that specific situation, like you will really, you know, generally how it works is you have a aha moment and you're like, like, this is it. Like that was the last straw. Like that was my awakening. And for me, that's essentially what happened uh, when I was sitting at the desk uh, for the it company. And, um, you just have to find it in yourself to stay inspired, man. Life is so hard as it is, um, in terms of, just the mundane everyday dealing with people, um, going out, going to work, and paying bills, and trying to be a great uh, husband, wife, um, and to still the audacity to still have dreams and to pursue dreams. It's easier. It's easier just to be mediocre, to be honest. But you know, those who who have that drive and that just get fed up and they want to change their own lives, uh, they usually just find the courage to jump out there and do it, man. So, I mean, that's honestly who I am and what I'm all about. Like, if I'm going to do something, I I try to challenge myself to do everything that comes to mind. And no matter how bizarre it is, I try to do it to the best of my ability, because if I'm going to fail, I'm going to fail epically. And at the end of the day, I'm going to be able to say that I at least did what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it, no matter how successful it was. But that, that's, that is, uh, something to be said in itself that I leaped out there and I trusted God. And I, I went on, uh, my own instinct in regards to what I wanted to do.
0: Absolutely. It sounds like you've done a ton of fear conquering in your life. What, what's your take on fear?
1: Oh yeah, man. Um, who, uh, that is a great question. Um, I have done a lot of fear conquering in my life, just from the sense of, uh, I think when you grow up uh, in in certain environments in certain ways, uh, which ties back to my organization um, targeting uh, at risk minority minority kids, and what okay. generally at risk minority children refers to is uh, you know kids who live in poverty or um, single parent um, homes um because you know I can relate you know my my uh mother raised me as a single parent but my father uh they split very early on in my childhood and and my dad was always in my life and he still is in my life and we have a great relationship but I have to attribute my mother to raising me into the man that I am today and just watching her go day in and day out to provide for my uh myself and my two sisters and whatever that entailed, just throughout life, and watching her go to work and uh, having a bigger purpose, which was taking care of us and sacrificing her dreams, that was motivation in itself. So for me, that gave yeah. me the courage to be fearless. You know, it's it's just something about watching her struggle. I was like, you want to know what? I watched this woman like go to a job and make minimum wage and still feed all three of us. Like still get toys on Christmas, and you know make a way for us, so I was like, you know, if she can do it under these types of circumstances, I have no excuse of why I can't get up every day and pursue uh different things that pop into my mind, like there's no way I can't fathom I can't do something, like I truly believe I can fly and I'm flying so
0: yeah literally you are <laughs> yeah it's uh it's you, you, com, in comparison to what you were observing your your excuses seem kind of wimpy, they seem they were pointless <laughs> right does that, does that make sense yeah yeah so I, I i like to think about you know the 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 human problem right I talk to my wife about this a lot. The human problem is literally uh a bad investor's problem, and that's that we don't know how to delay gratification. We have this weird, uh, whether it's societal, whether it's habits, whatever it may be, we have this weird thing where we always want the reward right away. Like like a like a bad you know puppy or a bad dog or something like that, so what i what I try to tell people who are going through tough time is find something in your life that you are not delaying and delay it. delay the gratification of it if you want to lose some weight, delay the gratification of it. you're not going to see it right away you're gonna to have to do this for six months, you're gonna to have to do this for a year or two, but you will see it happen If you want to make money, put the money away, delay the gratification of spending it, and that money will inflate with the compound effect, et cetera, et cetera. But for some reason, man, I have no idea why we can't just (laughs) just do that. Why it's so hard for people to do this.
1: (laughs) And and you you hit it right on the head, man. It's just like, I think once it is so hard to flip that switch, but once you flip that switch, like it's truly endless possibilities. Like I can't, like, you know, if you asked me 10 years ago, you know, if I thought I would ever be flying planes and starting a nonprofit and um you know married um you know have a home and all these types of things like I'd be like, uh, I don't know man, like probably not maybe um but you know it's I just had a moment man like you know it just dawned on me one day like this can't be it. this truly cannot be my life coming into a job like this, sitting behind a desk. Uh, getting coffee in the morning and listen to Bob tell me about how you know it, the most excitement he gets is uh figuring out how to build a firewall. Um <laughs> <laughs> for, for for hours, you know what I mean? And no yeah. I mean, don't take offense to that. I mean, some people do find enjoyment in that, and that's yeah. totally fine, but for me, it wasn't what I knew God had called me here to do. And I think that's when the tide started to begin to turn because I grew frustrated in the midst of that situation. And then I literally was like, I got to get out somehow, some way. And, you know, God supplied the rest. The, the airline job came up and I was like, all right, I'm applying. I went in same day, got the job. I was prepared for it. And I told myself going into the airline job that I was going to walk out of there with the job. So I psyched myself out mentally I prepared, I studied all of the company's information. I literally went in and I made myself undeniable. And, you know, and I got That's the problem. Problem. I spoke it into existence. So, um, yeah, man, once you flip that switch, you know, you can do anything you wanna do in life, I truly believe. So I'm just excited about this nonprofit and changing these kids' lives. And I'm even more excited to see, you know, what else is to come in the future, um, you know, cause, I'm definitely nowhere near done uh, reaching uh, my peak.
0: No, I definitely don't think so. I, I There's another uh, topic that I'm extremely interested in. I want to ask you because not only has your industry been affected, but the whole world has. Um, I want to know, I like to ask people, especially the ones I talked to recently, how their 2020 was. And the reason I like to ask before I ask you is because you know, it's no secret that COVID has kind of flipped everything upside down. Um, you know, the, the the tragic death of George Floyd, right. the social justice movements, the weird, weird political season that's happening, um, and, and the polarization that's happening in the world with, um, you know, it, it just a split down the middle. Right. How was your 2020? Because mine's, you know, selfishly, I must say, even though the world was falling apart, I, I I would walk outside and I would look around and I couldn't find a trace of what I was reading online.
1: Man, that is I'm glad you asked that. Um, that is a great question. My 2020 has been emotionally draining, to say the least. Okay. And um, alert from Dropbox. Oh, sorry about that. That's my Dropbox is full. <laughs> sorry about that, but um. My, it, it has truly been um, emotionally draining to me um, because I, and I can understand where you're coming from. I feel like, I guess me as a, a, a black man in America with all of the, the hate that has been um, displayed this, this year, um, you know, it's just been like, it, 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 it has to affect me, you know what I mean? Like, I I, I cannot be not affected when there are, you know, people on the news that look like me, (laughs) getting killed every day, um, you know, irregardless to what the facts are, you know, but when you can turn on the TV and you can constantly see people that look like you being killed and misunderstandings, it just yeah. you know, and maybe that's uh partly the media's fault, but that begins to, you know, take over your mind and your emotions and it puts you in a place where, you know, I, I, I honestly have to say where I, I was just like this year, like, you know, in 2020 we're still having issues with race, and I can't fathom that we are still having that issue. And, you know, predominantly for me, I guess, growing up in the South, uh, more so than the North, it's racism has always been prominent. Like, if you're below the Mason-Dixon line, there's, there's no Black person or minority that I've ever met South that hasn't had any encounter with racism um, in some shape, form, or fashion. Like, it's just, it's a part of the culture down here. So I can totally understand uh, living in Boston and Massachusetts and you coming outside and not seeing it every day because it isn't as prevalent up there. Um, okay. but it is a real, 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 um, thing down here, you know, I, and to put it in perspective, there's literally, I can go downtown Atlanta right now. And, you know, every now and then the KKK puts flyers on everybody's cars. Like it, this is, you're talking oh, wow. from the sixties. Um, you know, people still, carrying out the organization and still having the same viewpoints and you know they're still operating and alive and well so you know I I would not have to I guess you know you don't you wouldn't have a moral compass if you're not affected by what you're seeing on tv so you know most people choose to turn it off ignore it or to stay inside of their bubble but you know for me it it was just emotionally draining because I tried to ignore it yeah you can't, you know, I think there was like two or three weeks straight where it's like, soon as, um, the George, uh, Floyd incident happened, like the next week, another guy died the next week, another guy. And I was like, and people yeah. really think that it's not a thing. Like we have constant days of, you know, people dying that look like me and, you know, you have people who say, well, they shouldn't have resisted. And, you know, they're, they're, uh, there's, uh, I guess, reports that support that um, the person did this before that and this and that. But at the end of the day, none of that matters. They're still people. They still have children. They still have a wife. And um, for me, that's just been a challenge to watch um, as a whole this year. So, you know, even with my training, my training has uh, been dragging this year because I've been so affected by all of the stuff that I've been seeing because it's kind of hard to Put my head down and just continue to go to work and train. But I'm gonna tell you about how great God is and how this comes full circle for me because it got to the point where I was like, you know, kind of on Facebook, like, which I try to not be political and, you know, talk about race with people because I have friends and family that, you know, come from all walks of life and that look, you know, look different across the board. And, but it got to the point where I got so, so emotionally driven by everything that was going on that I I was like starting to engage people that I probably shouldn't have engaged in terms of politics and race, because at the end of the day, people, I think people realize what is going on in the world, but they just choose to ignore it or they choose to not identify with it, or they honestly just can't relate because it doesn't, like you said, you, you you couldn't see it in in, um, in the Boston area. So, you know, yeah. but for people down South, it's like, it's a real thing. Like I, I honestly have to, you know, if, God forbid if I had kids right now, I would be worried about my son hanging out in the city with his friends because he might not come home because in 2020, there's still black people getting um, killed and lynched because of the color of their skin, which just blows my mind. So that's a, that's a real thing thing to have to think about each and every day. But um so yeah, I yeah. found myself getting trapped in social media, going back and forth with people until I got to like kind of a breaking point. And it, you know, it really probably cost me a lot of relationships this year because it exposed how a lot of people who I respected really thought. And for yeah. me, that was uh kind of uh, numbing for me because it's like there are people that I might have idolized or Trusted their opinion, and it's not that I don't think that they should be able to have the viewpoint that they have, but it basically boils down to okay, well, if you feel that way, then what are you thinking? How do you really feel about me? Because I look the same as that individual. Um, yeah, I stand yeah. for the same thing. So, do you really care about me? Do you really love me? Because you know you're displaying a certain type of energy. And you're doing things that, you know, would contradict that. So, um, yeah, yeah. yeah, So this, this year has been hard, but again, about the, how it comes full circle, actually one of the young men that are, uh, coming, one of the young men that are coming to the event that I'm having, he's actually the son of Mr. Brooks, who was killed at the Wendy's, um, in Atlanta. So, and I didn't know he was coming, um, and his uh mother kind of RSVP'd last minute and when i knew who it was i was like yeah i would love to to have him i would never tell him no not to come to the event because you know that's that's got to be hard you know he watched of course his his father get killed on the news and it was played every day over and over and over and over and you know now he's a fatherless child and For me to be in a position to be a positive light after a year like what he just had, that is that is my that is my uh, godly duty to be in place to uh, mentor him, to expose him to this career path and, uh, you know, to do that. So for me, this is that's probably the highlight of the event, like the fact that I get to meet him and take him in a plane and take him
0: flying. And change his life. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah, Pretty much. Yeah, no, listen, you hit on so many... I I, I guess I was a little bit vague when I said that 2020 was a good year. 2020 was a great year for me because I was able to uh, purchase a home. Uh, I was able to do... Basically, I was able to do a lot of great things that I was told I could not do. Uh, But no, I I agree with you 1000%. Um, I had to step away from social media um, full circle for similar reasons to you. I mean... What was happening was is that a lot of people were exposing themselves to be completely different people than I imagined them to be. Gotcha. Um, now I I kept having arguments with myself, basically saying, "Am I being too hard on this person? Because they should be allowed to say, what? you know, what they want to say and how they want to feel. That's perfectly fine. The problem with me is is that." You know, you can't tell me, and this has nothing to do with black, white or anything. I mean, it, it does, but it doesn't. You can't tell me that a person deserves to be shot 17 times because the problem that's happening with that is, is that you can go to any hunter and they would tell you that an animal doesn't even get shot 17 times. Exactly. So it's it's very weird for me to see. Like, uh, um, I don't see it because you're right. I live in the Boston area. It's a little bit different. But it's not that I'm ignoring it. It's, it's, just, it's just the fact that people, you got to kind of let people fall over themselves and show who they are. Absolutely. Right. So, So when somebody gets into the conversation with me, which was happening on social media way too often, which is trying to justify silly things that are non-negotiable. Like if you're a human being, you don't want another human being shot 17 times. That just doesn't work. (laughs) Right. Like, and and, and when you sit back and try to explain to me, you know, well, you know, protocol, this and protocol, this, no protocol on earth that as a human being determines that I need to let off 17 shots at any (laughs) point in time. (laughs) Exactly. So that already turns the conversation kind of sour. And then what ended up happening was with, when the political stuff started combining itself to it, um, it, you know, if if I were to say anything that was Trump, that would automatically make me Obama. Right. And, and to me, it was like, well, wait a minute. I personally didn't really give two shits, and this is not in a disrespectful way. I personally didn't give two shits about what Obama was doing, about what Bush was doing, about what Clinton was doing. Yeah. I, I personally, so if I'm having a conversation with somebody and I tell them, hey, if you were in the middle of 300 starving people in Puerto Rico and you had your opportunity to help them out, would you sit there and flick paper toilet rolls exactly. or would you be there handing out crates to the people in their hands? Exactly. That's the, that's the only question that I would ask. It's a character question. It has nothing to do with race. Yeah,
1: absolutely, man.
0: And, and, and the problem that I would get is, is that immediately the people that I would ask this to that are Trump supporters would immediately start comparing this to Obama somehow, some way. Exactly. And, and that's weird to me because I'm not asking you about Obama. I'm not even asking you about a comparison. What I'm asking you for is would you personally flick toilet paper rolls at people that were desperately starving and in rough shape? Oh man, you you and, you hit yeah.
1: dead on the head, man. Like I I mean, I can't even like you you summed it up so beautifully because it's it's just that you have to literally look in the mirror and, you know, morally say like <laughs> Like you can't tell me that you you didn't watch the video of George Floyd with, yeah. with the officer putting his knee on his neck, like showing no emotion while he was doing it. Right. Even why a grown six foot two hundred pound man screamed for his mother yeah, not in and, and not feel like uh, emotionally driven by that, like it—it's
0: a human thing. It's not a color thing. It, That's human at that point.
1: And, right. and when people started to, to, I guess, in these debates or when I was talking to pe- different people and they would just try to justify it with, oh, protocol, this and this and that. It's just like no, a, a man at the at the bare surface, you're watching a man kill a man on live TV. Yeah. Everybody else is standing around watching it. Nobody's doing anything. He's clearly in distress because he's a grown man screaming for his mother. Yeah. Like that image in itself just hurt my soul, man. And it's like I can't take it out of my head. And for you know, people to to try to justify that in some shape, form, or fashion. It doesn't matter if he he uh wrote up a, a, a ten dollar bag check or however much bad check it was like. Who hasn't written a bad check in their life? Like
0: That's a very weird argument. Yeah. That's like, a strange argument.
1: Like, does that justify you to get killed and to lose your life and to not be able to go home to see your kids and your wife? Like for writing a bad check? Like that. Yeah. That doesn't and even, you know, there's the argument of oh, well, you had uh fentanyl in the system. Uh, it doesn't matter. Like So what? Uh, yeah, like you
0: Yeah. The cop is not the executioner.
1: Right. So yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I totally get that. And then with the whole Trump thing, man, it's like, I, I try to avoid politics as much as possible and same here. And I'm kind of the same way. It's like, you know, I don't, for me, like, you know, I am a citizen of the United States. I respect every president that we have in office, um, whether I totally 100% agree with them and or not, but I can honestly say in the year of 2020, that is this is the... The first year in my lifetime that I have experienced the most uh, racial um, tension that I have ever witnessed in my lifetime. And there's the leader of the free world speaking and doing certain things. You cannot tell me how that does not directly correlate and um, inspire people who wouldn't normally be this radical to do what they do and to say what they say and, um, you know, get excited. Like it, it's, it's a direct correlation. And, you know, I've had argument with arguments with different people about, Oh, you know, you can't say uh, that uh, Trump is racist. All this, I'm not saying that Trump is racist. I'm just saying that what he stands for as the leader of the free world, I do not think he stands for the right things. Like it's, it's that simple. Right. Like when I think of a, a leader, in any position across the board, he is not that. I cannot I cannot relate him to that. Maybe on the business side, money-wise, money which is cool. If you care about your pockets, then yeah, you probably think that Trump is brilliant and he's done amazing things for you because he has uh, from a money standpoint. But from a moral standpoint, I do not think he meets the bar whatsoever. And nobody can change my opinion of that, honestly. I mean, it's just... Yeah, that's how yeah. I feel. But I'm not gonna hate you because you think different from me. That's just, you know, from my raw experience. Like I live down here in the South. I go to the grocery store, you know, and I get certain energy from people with Trump hats, and they're the same people that have the Confederate flags on their their uh, truck, and they're like, you know. Yeah wow, why do you have a problem with me loving the Confederate flag? Well, for one, um,
0: you guys lost, you
1: lost, you <laughs> lost. And, uh, secondly, uh, when the Confederate, uh, you know, Confederacy was in power, all black people were enslaved. So, um, yeah, I think I would have a problem with that. Are you going to tell me that you wouldn't, um, have a problem with a regime, um, You know, having a certain flag and people decades later associating themselves with it, and it caused a lot of your ancestors to be slaughtered. That's just like, I think I posted one day um, that people can't understand the black and white thing, but you know, it's like, you won't go over to Israel and see somebody carrying a Nazi flag down the street. Yeah, for sure like it 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 doesn't happen like there's nobody that ballsy to 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 do that in in modern day Jerusalem period yeah. and even when you go to uh Germany even though it is a part of their history they don't even you, you can barely find I've been to Germany plenty of times and been to the different museums etc like the Nazi flag is a part of the history but there's nobody riding around with it on their car. There's
0: no, yeah, it's like they're ashamed of it. Yeah. yeah
1: there's it, it they, they acknowledge that it was a bad time in their history and they debted it. But for some reason in the US, people cannot get past slavery and thinking that they are the supreme race and that, you know, the uh, specific other races should be lower than them. Etc. So it just blows my mind, man. But it's yeah, all you can do is continue to give love to people and uh, act as God will want you to. And um, yeah, man, and you can't let it phase you. So it's it's great to take breaks from social media to get back focused.
0: Yeah, I, I completely went away. I don't I don't want to go back to social media because I think what I've found by doing this podcast is a lot more important than social media because I can, I can have the conversation that I can't have online, right? You can take off the mask, you can take off the gloves, and you can talk. And for anybody who's listening to this podcast who would say, wow, this is extremely leftist or extremely this or whatever that, I would invite you to come on and give me the right argument because I do stand for a lot of right arguments. Right. The one thing that you're not going to flip me on is... You can't come to me and listen, I, I'm a big fan of like studying cults and studying, you know, ideologies and all that type of stuff. And the one thing you can't tell me is that if I've known you for X amount of years, why a person that you have never met in your life is more important in this conversation than you you and our relationship. Exactly. That's the part that you will never be able to flip me on, because that's what happens when I I have sat with buddies and with people that are Trump supporters in a room. Their argument goes from the point at hand to now somehow trying to convince me that I also need to like this guy. Oh, man. And, and, And I want to give a heads up to anybody who's doing that to anybody else. That's what people did in Waco. That's what people did with Jim Jones. That's what people do in all types of different cults. Yeah. They get this one glorified figure, and then they go around telling other people how great this figure is. Absolutely, I don't think anybody is great. I think we are all human beings, and I agree with you a thousand percent. If you, the right person, is going to come and give a righty argument, please don't talk about Trump and the characteristics of the person Trump, because you will lose that argument a thousand percent. Exactly. I'm a I'm, I'm a big believer in character is fate. Right. And he has shown me enough character even before he was president, as a businessman. Right. He has showed me enough character to let me know that I don't need to worry about individuals like Donald Trump because fate will take care of individuals like Donald Trump. Man. Yeah. So I, I I love the social media, man. Like, I, I do a little bit of Twitter. I do, like, 5% Twitter. Um, but I refuse to argue with people that I love and care about about people I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it's just not gonna happen with me. Uh, and whoever wants to have that fight with me, they they they're gonna see the wall because I don't have that fight anymore. Yeah, I don't talk that stuff. And if you want to come down to the podcast and all that stuff, we could talk about it. But please leave your argument as like right stuff. Like I do understand that you can't realistically pay for everybody's college loans and still make that profitable. I do understand a lot of the right stands, but when you bring Donald Trump and you tell me that oh I should do this because he did that, you lost me. I'm gone.
1: Exactly, I, I couldn't agree uh, more a thousand percent. Um, I I think you hit it dead on the head again with the. Um, I think when I got off of social media, I was able yep. to direct that energy into things like the nonprofit. So yes. that's why I'm so um you know so head over heels about it, and I'm so fixated on it because at the end of the day, I realize what's really important, and the best way for me to um. You know the slogan of uh, my nonprofit is "Initiate the change you want to see." The best way for me to do that is for me to log off, ignore all of the distractions, and to put the work in and to do my part to initiate the change that I want to see. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's that, beautiful. That that is what it's all about. And uh, you know, I I just I let it all go, and I'm like, you want to know what? I'm not going to engage anybody. Um, I'm not going to post on my social media unless it uh, has anything to do with about the good stuff that we're doing, because we're changing lives and we're trying to inspire people who are watching for that particular reason. But yeah, Asian people on politics and, um, you know, all these different things is it's just a waste of energy. And I can be getting so much more done um, by investing my time
0: wisely. So. I, and you have yeah. and you have you're about to change some lives. So how how do people help? How do how does anybody listen who wants to support your cause and support everything that you're doing? How do they, you know, reach out to you? How do they provide? What do they do?
1: Definitely. Um so you can um check out our website at uh, www.thebrockfoundationinc.com. Um we're also on uh social media under the same um uh handle as well. We are accepting donations uh, right now. Well, I won't say donations. We're accepting gifts for legality purposes.
0: Since yeah, <laughs> good catch.
1: It's, it's, uh, the um, the uh, paperwork is still pending. So if you want to gift us now this time, uh, if you want to make any contribution to help us with our cause, we would appreciate it. Um, the mission is still the same and we're going to get it done and I'm prepared to um take on that undertaking because this is my dream uh to inspire the next generation so yeah if you want to gift us anything we're happy to take any uh contribution but again at this time which it also says it on the site being that our uh, 5013c is pending that we cannot technically send you back an itemized receipt etc so i just have to let people know that if they are interested in uh gifting us anything uh, via the site. But definitely check out the site in general and see what we're doing because uh, my organization provides aviation education, a free ground school for teaching. Um, We also connect the children with uh, volunteer pilots uh, if they want to take discovery flights. So that's what we do. And um, we're going to keep pushing. And like I said, long term, keep watching us. Uh, We're definitely planning on getting into the flight portion of the nonprofit business and adding that uh, layer on to the business. So we do want to eventually buy planes and we want to hire flight instructors to train these kids at no cost to them. So uh, that's the story
0: and I'm sticking to it, man. That's incredible, man. Now, listen, Omar, you what you're doing is virtuous. It's very humbling to a person like me and uh, very inspirational. Um, please continue to do what you're doing. There's a lot that 2020 has taken from us and has deprived us of. But when I, at least I hear stories like yours and what you got going on, um, I definitely get optimistic about life. I see that there's people still out there doing good stuff and not spending all their time you know, bitching about shit they can't control. Um, so please keep going. I'm gonna put all the links in the show notes so people can reach out to. You. Um, I have a few big podcasters that follow me, so if y'all listening, wink wink, y'all go and do some donation. Y'all got pockets, I know y'all do. Uh, but Omar, thank you so much, man. I appreciate you for coming uh, coming on. I hope this ain't the last time you come on, and you know, sky's the limit. No pun intended. <laughs>
1: <laughs> thank you so much uh, again. I'm honored uh, that you would have me on your podcast. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, share my story. And um, I'm glad that you have found inspiration in it. And I have definitely found uh, inspiration in this conversation with you to keep going uh, on my mission. So, again, thank you so much for your time. And I-, I can't tell you how much this means to me.
0: Cool, man. We'll talk soon, brother. Thank you. Sounds good, bro. Thanks for joining me for another conversation, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed it. We need to be more caring of others. It's the only way that we're going to survive. It's the only way we've gotten this far. And for some reason, we've forgotten that we need each other. So guys, let's help each other out. Let's do big things. Let's contribute to the world. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, share, and subscribe so we can continue to have the conversations we like to have and you can continue to have the conversations you love to listen to. As always, guys, take care.